Teach Me Something, the podcast where I get to investigate any cool topic, really, and then I teach it to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So this week, um, we're now on part two of our Poison Squad series. Um, we're It's going to be, like, gross again, getting a little more dangerous as well. Ooh. And you, Yeah, right? Sexy, but not sexy because it's so gross. Hmm. Um, in... My conclusion so far is I'm just really glad I don't live in this time because, like, the food is just horrifying. Um, and, oh. <laughs> and um, in this one, we're finally at the end going to get to the name Poison Squad. Yeah, we're, we're not really going to get there. We're going to get to the line where I transition to the fact that we talk about it next episode. Mm. Okay, but, well, but the name is is there at the end. This is like one of those stories where you say the end up front, and then yeah. we go back in time and rewind, and then figure out how we got to there. Exactly. Okay. But just in. But the, it's the middle of the trilogy a few still. Decades of yes, okay. exactly. Got it. Um, so last week, I don't know if you remember. I can do a very quick recap for Great. everyone. Um, we are talking about how gross food was. The we end. Were. Um. No, we're talking about Harvey Wiley, and he is a chemist, and he is crusading for pure food, and really, he just thinks things should be labeled with their ingredients. Um, shocking concept at the time. We're also mm-hmm. kind of complaining about how business and big business interests are constantly getting in the way of the government trying to do anything as far as passing any laws. Right. Um, and that, you know, the rest of the world outside of the United States was doing a lot better when it came to food laws. So we're going to keep following this really frustrating battle in the United States for them to, like, you know, catch up to the rest of the world in this respect. Of course. Um, all right. Are you ready? I am. Teach me something. Awesome. So picking up where we left off last week, it's 1888. It is. Now. Now it's 1888. I'm, I'm saying that. Mm-hmm. An outgoing president who is uh, Grover Cleveland. Because it's 1888. Uh huh. I don't. You know who was president in 1888? <laughs> Everyone knows that. Yes. Because um, I just looked it up. That's why I know that. <laughs> um, so he signed a bill which made the agriculture department into a cabinet now. Hmm. So what they put in the cabinet <laughs> for coats, more staff, or... a bigger budget, more oh, responsibility. Actually worked. Segue right into my sentence. I, d- I knew um, it. But yet, didn't really increase their influence. No one cared about oh. them. Still, their voice was was pretty puny. Um, Wiley was continuing to write his reports over and over. This food's bad. That food's bad. Food adulteration. No one paid attention to anything out of this chemistry division. Uh, so I should mention, um, every few years, like, during this this story, there is one congressman or senator, you know, making attempts to pass laws. Pro- usually, like, almost every two, three years. Okay. It's just that they never, nothing significant. Um, they never make it to debate. They never make it to the floor. They're just a few weeks maybe, and then they're squashed. Um, so like, for example, in 1888, Virginia Congressman William H.F. Lee, Mm. son of Robert E. Lee. Oh, okay. You know, the one, yes? Yes. The Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Correct. Um, well, he introduced a bill for mandatory food labeling. 
that lasted about three weeks before it it died. Um, yeah, so they weren't having an easy time of it. In, in 1890, Wiley decided he would hire a journalist to communicate with the public all his findings and maybe get um, get them interested. Just like public buy-in, basically. Uh, he, if the government wasn't going to help, he was going to recruit the people. Mm-hmm. So then in 1891, uh, Senator Algernon Paddock. Oh, Very did cool he get name. flowers? <laughs> That's true. That's the only thing I can think of with the name Algernon. Mm -hmm. Um, He's from Nebraska, and he proposed some legislation. Food, safety, food, adulteration, that kind of pure food legislation. And the strongest opposition to this bill actually came from the former Confederate states himself. They were, like, categorically opposed to anything that was going to give the federal government any more power. Of course. So yeah. the federal government having power over their food, they were not having it. Um, they're really suspicious of the North and their intentions. Well, that's not surprising. Um, so, yes, this is, well, 1891, where, you know, 30, not even 30 years from the Civil War here um, after. Anyways, so they kept saying states' rights, states' rights to do whatever we want with our food. The phrase is a little bit tainted right now, but states' rights. Um, senators from Tennessee and Georgia were, like, saying that the USDA was trying to send spies through oh. the countryside um, with these laws. And they're going to unlawfully search private homes and businesses. And they're scaring all the people. And the people didn't want that. So um, that straw men they created <laughs> really did the job. Um, and it's interesting to me that the Civil War, you know, had an impact on... Food safety regulations, you know what I mean? Right. Like, they can't pass this bill because of this feelings like from distrust. the Civil War still. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that actually did have a pretty big impact. and that. Uh, but the Senate passed the bill. Senator Paddock spoke for hours about how America was the only Western nation without national food safety laws and about how it wasn't the consumer's job to buy food without poison in it. Like, that's that's not fair to put that on the people. Right. Um their freedoms and anyways and and driving the bad products out of business by not buying them was not the responsibility of you know the housewife doing the grocery shopping and unlike as other people were suggesting as you can imagine you know you know that kind of attitude um so the market will not correct itself here reminded the senate but you know then industry lobbyists uh block the bill in the house because they have a lot of legislators like you know, manufacturers and the grocers uh, and farmers groups even wanted, really? to, wanted to kill these bills. Um, and so sure. and okay. they had a lot of influence in the legislature. So or like in the House. So, yeah, didn't stand a chance. Um, while he kept trying, the, the next major report the Division of Chemistry issued was a study of tea, coffee and cocoa in 1892. So they started with tea. And they found, like, it was adulterated with Prussian blue dye, which is made from cyanide, mm, um, indigo dye, soapstone, gypsum sand, and the leaves were, like, from rose bushes, wisteria, willow elm. Like, they weren't, like, tea, tea leaves. leaves. They, were, yeah. they were just leaves. Um, and the adulteration was just so common in the tea industry that some manufacturers, like, leaned into it. Um, there was one company that made lye tea. They called it lye tea. And, um, and it was on honest label. Good for them. Because 
lye tea was made from the dust of tea leaves, minerals, starch, and just random leaves. Like, dozens of, well, it seems like whatever they came across that day. It like autumn. It was just, like, random leaves. Yeah, um, they were raking. And... Like, a collection, like, of a dozen different types in each box. So, if you want to drink leaf water, you got it. Yeah. Um, as for cocoa, <laughs> the investigators said there is, quote, probably no more misleading or abused term in the English language. Ouch. Cocoa powder contained, like, every type of soil. Like, clay, loam, sand, uh, iron oxides were used to color it, generally. Okay. You know, rust yeah. is best to drink. Um, and then they wanted to give it, like, this nice metallic sheen. They figured real chocolate has a metallic sheen. So they just powdered some tin. Just Ooh. some tin. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. great. <laughs> so anyways, that's cocoa. Delicious. And then we come to coffee, America's hot beverage of choice. Um, and there's just so much stuff they used to put in coffee besides coffee beans. Oh, so... If it was ground coffee, obviously they can sneak lots of stuff into of it. Course. So ground coffee had things like tree bark, sawdust, beets, acorns, chicory root, flower seeds, charred wheat, corn, beans, peas, all those legumes. Um, and so during the I mean, Civil that War, healthy though legumes. <laughs> we're going back. Yes, it was, except for if you, I don't know, need some energy or I'm not sure hot bean water has the same effect as caffeine. But um, yeah. during the Civil War. Another fun fact, guys. Union soldiers still had access to some coffee rations um, that might have had real coffee in them. Okay. But Confederate soldiers didn't. So, caffeine won the Civil War. Oh, obviously. That's how yes. you do science, right? That's yeah. how you just conclude that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but in all honesty, the Confederate soldiers had to drink, like, their coffee was made of charred wheat, peas, beans, and corn. That's what they drank for coffee. And yeah, the union had real coffee. So it's just interesting. It um, and and uh, anyways, so in Wiley's report, um, he said 87% of all the ground coffee samples they tested were adulterated. Some samples had 0% coffee beans. Um, but sure, like, you know, if the customer was buying like whole coffee, whole beans and not ground, um, surely they could be certain they were getting the... The mm. right Pinto thing. beans? <laughs> no. No. Wiley's investigation uh, showed us that the manufacturers had been really hard at work faking coffee beans. Like, huh. they, they were ingenious. Here's what they did, okay? So, they, they mixed, like, flour and, like, molasses, dirt, sawdust, that kind of stuff. And, like, pressed it together. And they, like, mold in molds. Like, in these coffee bean molds. And then... Um, that was the beans. <laughs> and mm. um, and then you had to, like, color it, right? Yeah. So they would use, like, charcoal, charred bone, powdered iron, arsenic, cyanide, and lead. And then you have to make them shiny. I feel like you just, like, <laughs> slipped those last three, the arsenic, <laughs> lead, I mean, cyanide. it's just all those dyes. All the dyes. I didn't even bother to say the name of the dye yeah. anymore because... The problem is the arsenic, cyanide, and lead. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to focus on those. Um, so that's one way to make fake coffee beans. It is one Another way. way is to get cheap beans and sell them as expensive java beans. 
Of course. So cheap beans are light colored, and Java beans were known for their dark color and their shine. So just put charcoal on them. Yeah, well, and yeah. Lead. So they used and the arsenic. same. Yeah, exactly. They used all the same dyes, but they had to make them shiny after. Um, so this is just like not even that bad after I said all those things. No big deal. They pretty much use like glycerin or Vaseline, hmm. which, by the way, had been recently patented in 1872. Yeah. Vaseline. Um, so yeah, not so bad, right? So they polished them with that and just like said, they were, were Java beans and sold them for a lot more money. Well, side note, the guy who invented Vaseline ate a spoonful a day. (laughs) Yes. His story is quite interesting. (laughs) It is. Um, so the manufacturers kind of suck here, uh, but the grocers were like certainly complicit. Hmm. Uh, so for example... A letter a distributor would send to the grocer. Here is an actual example of a letter they sent. Dear sir, I send you by mail this sample of imitation coffee. This is a manufactured bean composed of flour. You can easily mix 15% of this substitute in with genuine coffee and no one will be the wiser. Um, Another flyer said that they were selling coffee pellets made of 75% filler, 15% coffee, and 10% chicory. And on there, they promise this will make a very desirable cup of coffee, and it can be sold at full price, undetectable to consumers. So, like, the grocers knew what they were doing, yeah. right? Um, Unless they couldn't read. That'd be tough for a grocer. You're going to need to read and write, I, I can assume, math. a lot. Well, all those things, yes. Mm-hmm. If you just memorize all the products and do good math, then you could be innocent in this circumstance. Ah, I don't... Okay. I'm not sure how you're buying your products in that case, but... <laughs> but people find a way. Yep. Yeah. So it may not surprise you to hear several more bills were brought in the next six years. They were all defeated before they were debated, and now we're in 1898. We are. Uh, yes, we got in the time machine and we're in 1898 now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or we waited a really long time. Um, and something finally has changed, which is the war. Ooh. Do you know which war started in, and ended in 1898? The I, war of 1898? Spoilers, I didn't know this either, obviously. Um, that's when the Spanish-American War was. Okay. The whole the Started whole and finished. Yes. Yeah, it was a short one. Um, it was a 10-week Ten-week war. It okay. started in April and ended in August, July, whatever ten weeks is. <laughs> Cuba was revolting against the Spanish. They, the U.S. generously joined in to quote help the Cubans gain their independence. Oh, they've never done that type of thing before. Um, which I'm sure. Hey, I'm sure it was the real reason, and it had nothing to do with going to war against Spain and getting stuff out of it. Like nothing. Um, so anyways, the U.S. won the war, and to clarify, no, no, not Cuba. Cuba did not win the war. Cuba was given temporarily to the United States. Uh, Okay, so the United States won the war. Yeah. Yeah. They won Guam, they won Puerto Rico, and they won the Philippines. The Philippines. Oh, you didn't know this? Yeah, the U.S., like, was a a colonized, that was a colonizer of the Philippines for, like, 80 years. 80? No, no, I didn't know this. 50? Oh, dear. See, I had so to learn something. So you taught me something. something. <laughs> oh, my. 
Is this the first time in no. 10, 11 episodes now? No, it was, it was just funny that that happened to be one of the things I didn't know. Right. The off topic. We learned lots of stuff. Now yeah. we're talking about a war right now. So even though this seems like a resounding victory, um, apparently there was like a ton of mismanagement and ineptitude to like to the point where the president fired the Secretary of Defense over this war. Um, and so you may be wondering how this has anything to do with food. Well, like one of these big scandals, probably the biggest scandal regarding the military was actually the quality of the food fed to the troops in Cuba. And the main issue was the beef, the beef, like canned beef that they got. Um, so it was called the embalmed beef scandal by the press. Ooh. Uh, it's a mummy. It made headlines coast to coast. And uh, so they actually got the name from the commanding general of the whole United States Army. Uh, he thought it was like he was just disgusted by this and he people kept talking to him about how gross it was so he asked like every unit to write like written reports every commander evaluating their beef um and like so some said their cans were swarming with maggots some said there was charred rope mixed into the beef um but all of them said there was like this strong chemical smell in the beef um quote soldiers had to retire to a distance to prevent being overcome by the stench Hmm. Which reminds me of that Swedish fish. Yes. Sermstrom. Strum. Strum. Strummy? Serm. The one that you're supposed to open underwater to. Oh my yeah. god. And yeah. So now in nineteen or eighteen ninety nine, by the way, we're in early eighteen ninety nine. This scandal has been raging. People have been upset. How dare we feed the troops this garbage? Yada yada yada. Um so the president who is McKinley, well, yeah, I don't know this one. McKinley hmm. is the president in 1899. Um, and he's under a lot of pressure to finally address it. So he orders the War Department to hold an inquiry. And I would like to clarify that this is actually the second inquiry because they did have one already, um, which went on for months. And the report ended by saying they did not reach a conclusion about the beef. So anyways, okay. this second inquiry... A lot of public attention here. It was called Beef Court by the newspapers. Oh, not Beefgate? Not Beefgate. Hmm. I mean, sadly, this Missed is a little bit before Watergate, but yeah. a little. And anyways, they asked Wiley to come in, analyze the beef, as he does. Um, and the thing is, Wiley and his like team, his chemistry team, had already done some research on American canned beef. And they hadn't come to very appetizing conclusions. Uh, every can they opened contained a soupy mix of meat scraps and fat. Fat was standard in the packaging um, of canned meat because they used it to like fill in the gaps. So they would put the, okay. the meat in and then they poured hot fat or boiled bone gelatin into the can to fill up all like, the spaces. And solidify it. and Yeah. Make it into like a solid puck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so finding, you know, a thick paste of gelatinous fat embedded with shreds and chunks of meat was the standard, actually, for sure. canned beef. Yeah, yeah. So to prepare for beef court, Wiley decided to test both the beef rations from the military and go to the grocery store, buy some canned beef there. Okay. And see what you were getting. Um, so he bought three different brands, and they're all, all three brands, though, were from those Chicago stockyards that kind of brought up 
last episode a little bit and we'll talk about further selling margarine (laughs) there's air quotes around that yeah um so the stockyards by the way have grown considerably since the 1880s uh thanks largely to a complete lack of workers rights and food loss so they're like they're even more influential they're the chicago ones especially um, are going to come up over and over in this story. And and if you know anything about Chicago, you would already know that the stockyards were a big part of their, right. their history. But, you know, it's very powerful, um, very successful companies at this time. Um, they were staffed almost entirely by immigrants, almost entirely. So, like, Irish, German, Polish, Russian, just kind of anyone who was the most desperate at the time. Um, so they earned 10 cents an hour on the killing floors, and they worked 10-hour shifts. But the really great news for the employers is that they could hire a woman for five cents an hour. Um, and then she would pack the meat. And then they could hire children as young as six for one cent an hour to do like odd jobs, like running around delivering messages and stuff. So, okay. um, so you know, they could be very successful. Yeah. That awesome way. <sighs> so, but... As the stockyards liked to remind everyone constantly, this is what the American public wants. Americans like their meat inexpensive. Was their quote. Americans like their meat inexpensive, so we couldn't possibly charge yeah. you anymore. So, um, for reference, at the time, fresh beef cost uh, 12 cents a pound in the United States. And you could get three cans of uh, beef for 25 cents. Is that roughly the same amount? Uh same amount of, quote, beef? Uh, uh, no. They're just saying 12 cents a pound on three cans. I don't think three cans would be a pound. That well, seems like pretty, not. Uh, yeah. yeah. I have no idea. Okay. I'm just telling you how cheap the beef was. Okay. And for reference, it was not this cheap in Europe. Understood. Yeah. Okay. So all this to say, the meat packers are angry again. They're influential and they're angry because, see, um, everyone's defaming them. Right. How dare you talk about how gross our food is? It's libel. Yeah. Well, also slander. You know, we're going to say libel, yeah, because there would be financial damages here. I would assume so. Um, But, you know, free market, maybe they deserved it. Ooh. Maybe. Just saying. It's just a possibility. Okay. Uh, so beef court is just going to get started here. And one of our star witnesses was uh, one Theodore Roosevelt, oh, who is I've currently currently the governor of New York at this time. During during the war, um, Colonel Roosevelt was hailed as one of the heroes of the Spanish American War. Um, he had like the Rough Riders division that he founded. Like it was, he was a big war hero, um, and so his words had a lot of weight. Of course, and they were heavy. very. <laughs> or dense (laughs) yes and he was well known so thus why this is going to be important his testimony here so he um testified that he watched one man vomit after attempting to eat his canned beef um he looked at the can and had this to say about it the top was nothing more than a layer of slime it was disagreeable looking and nasty the beef was stringy and coarse and seemed to be nothing more than a bundle of fibers 
Uh, Roosevelt said, good men have been let down by their country. The men were sent to war with provisions that were uneatable, unpalatable, unwholesome, utterly unsafe, and utterly unfit. He said that the men were starving their entire time in Cuba, and Roosevelt himself would rather have eaten his hat. And he didn't eat any meat. He actually just ate rice and beans the whole time. And hat. Yeah. Sautéed. I mean... In a little sauce, obviously, but still a hat. <laughs> uh, at least it didn't have maggots. Exactly. Army cooks uh, described a slimy product with a chemical tang. And the beef often had visible rot. The cook said they had to scrape a thick greenish goo off the beef to prepare it. <laughs> so, so That's yummy. Good. Uh, so after hearing all of this, you might be surprised at Wiley's testimony. So his conclusion was that there was absolutely nothing in the army cans or about the army cans that wasn't the same as the grocery store cans. Oh. So this included boric acid, salicylic acid, sulfites, sulfurous acid, not sulfuric, sulfurous acid. Is that different, Everett, than sulfuric acid? It's been too long since my chemistry degree, I can actually say. I still remember the endings. Eight, ick, eight, oaks. But I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's the same thing, okay? Um, but it's it's an acid that has sulfur in it. True. Okay. Table salt and saltpeter were in those things. But no, no formaldehyde. Okay. Because as you can Wonderful. tell by the name involved beef and everyone talking about the chemical smell, everyone was sure there was formaldehyde. I mean, m- many soldiers, like years after this, they like... 20 years after this, (laughs) that they were. And they were also complaining about Wiley still saying he was just wrong. I know there was formaldehyde in it. So like, like they were convinced, Um, but there wasn't, but, but gross is the point. Like, so now everyone was there beef. Yeah. I think there was some beef. Okay. Well, I was just listing things that were also found in there. Point one for, you know, the canned beef. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the rotting stuff, like the maggots and the rotting, that was because the cans weren't preserved well enough. Right. That wasn't, you know, because of some, well, also the gross unsanitary conditions they packed them in. But what I'm trying to say is um, it was just a lack of salt was the conclusion. They should have put more salt in it because mm. tropical hot weather, like in Cuba, they weren't prepared for that because they were normally packing their product for domestic use. So, right, because no one else would allow their beef to be... um, No one allows stuff in America at this point. Exports. Well, some exports they don't allow. So, um, so what what I was trying to say before is that now everyone knows all the stuff they've been hearing for months, all this gross stuff, is like the same for... The stuff Domestic. that they eat every day. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> um, so, by the way, one of Wiley's inspectors did visit the stockyards. Confirmed there was no formaldehyde. Um, but he did add the cows he saw there were of the poorest quality and possibly diseased. But again, these are the same cows used for the grocery store and for the army. So I guess that's okay, right? I guess so. And the meat packers. Again, we're furious because they understood the implication here. They understood everyone was going to know that their stuff was terrible quality. Um, 
But their defense, so they got up and testified that it was the cook's fault. The army cooks. Well, that's the um, obvious conclusion. That they were lousy and must have under-seasoned the meat because it was a little, quote, flat without seasoning. Um, so that was that was the entire issue. They just blamed mm-hmm. the army cooks. So beef court ends, and they release their report. And all the army cooks get fired. <laughs> Actually, uh, the conclusion was basically the heat might have caused some issues, and maybe the cooks sucked. They, they wrote that in their conclusions, that maybe the cooks were just lousy. Maybe they forgot to add salt. Um, and, and like, probably the heat was the issue, and, um, and everything's fine. And no one needs to do anything or change anything. No one should just live in Cuba. It's, it's too hot for the beef. <laughs> well, it's funny to me because Roosevelt complained about how he only ate rice and beans like, his whole time in Cuba. And I'm sitting here thinking, like was about what do you think the cubans were eating like yeah. poor you <laughs> anyways um the funny thing to me is they kind of ended this report by mentioning how annoying it was that people made such a big fuss about this like especially they were mad at the commander general of the u.s military like goodness like doesn't he have something better to do this is like this was really annoying is is yeah. in their report there go defend something so stop complaining about your food <laughs> so, but what Wiley did have something better to do. So all of a sudden, uh, just just months after beef court ends, deaths were being blamed on canned beef again. So first was a 19-year-old soldier in Tennessee. He had a seizure and died right after eating a can of corned beef. And when Wiley was called in to investigate, um, they found lead. So a massive mm. dose of, of lead. Which leaches out of the can into the food. And so while they decided to launch another examination of canned foods in general, focusing on the cans. Okay. So while he was learning, large amounts of tin had been uh, seeping into all types of canned foods, as well as the, the lead. So lead solder at this time was the preferred way to seal tin cans, even for food products. Mm hmm. And while other countries regulated the lead levels of their solder, the U.S. shockingly does not. Freedom. Um, so some so- solders that Wiley tested were actually up to 50% lead. So here's, yeah. here's a reference. Canada banned all use of lead in food packaging, including, of course, the canned foods, in the early 1980s. To this day, the U.S. does allow levels of lead up to 0.2%. Okay. Pediatricians have testified, and children's advocates, that that's too high. Really? That's too high. Okay. So, and I'm telling you, 50% lead was not unheard of. Not common, but not rare. Yeah. So, um, the U.S. also had no laws about what the composition of the tin for the tin cans could be. So, some cans were actually made of 12% lead. Um, other cans also had toxic metals like zinc or copper in them. And so, okay. <laughs> so you can't really even be a vegan because the vegetables all have lead and tin. And but we're made partially maybe, of beef. Maybe you could eat like some strawberry jam, right? Because jars. Jar, okay. Jars yeah, are glass. Made glass. But nothing is safe. <laughs> of course. Jars had lead tops. And the rubber rings they use to seal the lids, you know, those little rubber rings that could go on the inside to get it tighter. Well, those contain lead sulfate. So you have a lead top and you have lead sulfate on the rubber ring. 
And um, so jarred foods actually ended up having often more lead than canned foods did. Really? Shocked me. Great. <laughs> I, did, I did not see that one coming. No. They can make anything terrible, can't they? That's, pro- that's probably like a, a good rule of thumb in general. Yeah. So a month later, now in June 1899, uh, over a thousand people got sick from eating canned beef in Cincinnati. So in a, in a week, though, a thousand people in a week. And the officials blamed it on embalmed beef. They the cooks. Uh, no, they 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 tried to do something. Okay. It seemed like a lot of like state or city officials were like wanting something done, but they could just never. Right. You know, some states like a lot of states passed stuff within their own state. It was just you know the federal issue here. Um, they also thought that there was salicylic acid in the canned beef, and that was what was causing the deaths. So Cincinnati's public health chemist investigated the cans and he actually discovered two new brand name preservatives brand name preservatives were the new thing to do and they finally did justify the use of the term embalmed beef so designer chemical preservatives (laughs) the new trendy thing to do in food manufacturing so for example freezine If you use freezine, according to their, like, brochure, meat can be exposed for sale, returned to ice, more of the preparation applied, and still look good to the eye. So along with freezine, we have preservaline. Those two are the ones that they found in the beef. Both of them contain formaldehyde mm. as their active ingredient. There you go. Yeah. So a few weeks later, Omaha declared an embalmed milk crisis. They had hundreds of children dying. Uh, in fact, they actually had more infant deaths that year than they have ever had. So preservaline was found in the milk, and they linked it to almost all the infant deaths. And the next week is Indi- Indianapolis. Um, except this time, the dairy farmers didn't bother with those fancy name-ran preservatives. They just dumped straight formaldehyde into rotting milk. That'll save it. <laughs> well, actually, so formaldehyde has, they're saying, kind of an acrid, well, I've smelled it, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. But the combination of the rotting milk smell and the formaldehyde smell kind of cancels each other. Like, the formaldehyde helped it not smell like it was rotting. Yeah. So people wouldn't know how gross Far it was. Far gone it was. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But you also wouldn't smell the formaldehyde as much. You yeah. know what I mean? It was like it made it seem slightly palatable. And, um, yeah. So they sold that milk for a low price to poor families and orphanages. Yay, capitalism. I'm just going to I'm just going to say it. <laughs> it's doing a really good job right now. So, dozens of orphans died. In the end, 400 children died in Indiana from the embalmed milk scandal. And the preservative manufacturers who do you think they blamed? The cook. Oh. Actually, they blamed the dairies. They blamed the dairies, yeah. They said, well, you know, we designed our products with specific instructions, which is two drops per pint will preserve for two days. That was their their instructions. And it wasn't our fault if someone doesn't follow our instructions and they put a bunch in. So we take no responsibility for any of this. Of course. Um. So I would like to point out that in 1899, recommendations were for milk to be, like, the most important component of a child's diet. 
parents were told, like, the amounts were obviously varied, um, but parents were told that their child should be drinking, like, as much as a liter a day of milk. And so, I mean, maybe that actually helps to understand, like, how, you know, last episode we talked about a little bit, this episode, how so many kids were dying from from these milks. Yeah. um, Because they, they were drinking so much of it. Um, one good thing that came from this is that Indiana did pass their, like, statewide pure food law. Um, I like this one. At the press conference after, the Indiana State Health Officer was asked by uh, this journalist who, this journalist who was in the pocket of the dairy industry, let's just say. He asked him, why are you making such a big deal about this? And the state health official says, uh, well, it's embalming fluid that you're adding to the milk. I guess it's all right if you want to embalm the baby. So in my head, I imagine, like, mic drop, walk off stage, but but that's not historical. That's just what I'm imagining. Right. Another issue, though, to tackle was the biological contamination. So their bill had nothing, uh, said nothing about sanitation, basically. Okay. Hygiene. Yeah. Um, milk was still, like, really dirty. Just dirty. Uh, there was a new flash heating process, though, for killing dangerous microorganisms. Um, developed in France by uh, Louis Pasteur in the mm-hmm. in the 1860s, and since then, uh, many countries had started using the process for things like beer and wine and milk, and yeah. even mandating it. That its is use. classic pasteurization, right? It like, is pasteurization. Yeah. Um, but the U.S. wasn't doing it like at all. Okay. Hardly anywhere. And they, they, they really needed to uh, to catch up. And so Senator Mason decided um, to kind of spearhead an inquiry into, like, food safety regulations. Because, you know, clearly they needed another inquiry or another set of hearings or another trial because somehow they, they don't know. No, it's not clear. It's very, very murky. I'm on the... I'm confused. So this, the inquiries were called the Mason hearings. Um, they were extensive. They lasted almost a year. Uh, 200 witnesses, 500 different sessions. Or wow. 500 is way too many. 50 is the word I meant oh, to say. Okay. Wow. 50 different sessions, 200 witnesses. Lasted almost a year. And they had representatives of almost every industry testify. Um, the dairymen are mad and the meat packers are mad and... What's yeah. new? Grocers are mad. And Wiley's chemistry division obviously testified and they gave evidence that there was either fault, negligence, deliberate trick, or all three in the manufacturing of almost every food product. Wow. So most of that is not, most of that is the deliberate trick or fault thing. Like the, the serious cases of adulteration were only about 5% of all food. Okay. 90% of some groups of food. Uh, like coffee and spices and food made for the poor was the third category, widely included in 90% adulteration rates. I see. Again, like color me shocked. It's very disappointing, but color me shocked, right? Mm-hmm. So doctors testified. They were worried about like food and drink related illnesses, which were rapidly increasing. So here's an example of something that was happening more and more. Grocers itch. Now, mm. I'm just going to, wait, you, you have a look on your face. How about you, uh, you tell me what, what you think that, tell me what you think this is about. It almost seems like even the outside of products are so 
something that as you're leaving the store after having brushed up against the produce that you develop a rash or an itch or something. No, it's even worse than that. Oh, it's even worse than that. Good. So, Good. Um, grocer's itch was caused by brown sugar. I'm doing air quotes here. So sometimes they wouldn't even mix any actual brown sugar in. And sometimes it was a mixture of brown sugar and this other ingredient, which is just ground up insects. And so sometimes it's just a bag of ground up insects. And sometimes it's like 50-50, you know, something. Okay. But the thing is, is that they didn't do a really great job grinding up the insects. And usually there was lice in in it that survived the process. Okay. And so your brown sugar, more air quotes here, um, gives you grocery's itch, yeah. which is lice. So, I mean. I think that's worse. To me, that was worse. Yeah. <laughs> Don't don't wash your hair with brown sugar, I oh guess. God, I just oh my god. I'm sorry, I was just thinking about putting a scoop of live lice in my tea and just ugh. Okay. Sorry if you're eating right now. That was a poor choice to do, but I'm sorry anyways. Yeah. So bakers testified that flour was cut with gypsum and rock dust and baking powders were tainted with aluminum. Just I hadn't mentioned that one before, so as if you thought that there was right. anything else. That could... If you thought there was anything that was safe, you're yeah. wrong. Um, so grocers and manufacturers, they claimed they would actually love to sell pure food. But this lack of like mandatory and enforced labeling meant that if they were to try to sell pure food for the cost it should cost, they would be undercut by fake products and it would be impossible. So they felt forced to just keep up by making fake products or they'd be pushed out of the market. Okay. This was the argument. Which, like, like it or lump it, like, I mean, it is, it is something. Like, yeah, let's put some food labels on things, guys. Yeah. Good idea. State food chemists testified about the new industrial preservatives that were coming out. Because um, they are now found in almost every canned food, dairy item, and meat product you could find or you could buy. Besides those two formaldehyde-based ones I mentioned, uh, the Freezine and Preservaline, mm-hmm. um, there was another big name one. I, I don't know how you say it. Rosalind Berliner or like Rosaline Berliner? Because that sounds Germaner. It sounds like a German thing. I don't know why they named it that. But just so you know, the active ingredient was borax instead yeah. of the formaldehyde. Okay, well, that's way so, better. So um, Hudson's slime, our, our son's slime is made with, you know, borax. borax. So for me, I was like, okay. Slime making, but so I wanted to find out what borax actually was just for, just for me. So borax is a naturally occurring mineral salt. So mm-hmm. it's sodium borate. It was discovered in some dry lake beds in Tibet. Um, and then it's been traded along the Silk Road as early as like 700s CE. Mm. And it was mainly used for enamel glazing. So then in the modern age, there were actually huge borax deposits found in California so that drove its popularity as a preservative in the 1800s. Because um, if kind you of find some, bigger, you should a find industry. a reason you to put it in food. You should find a reason for somebody to need to put it in food. Yeah. That's good marketing. It is. Um, so you probably, though, if you're listening to this, may have heard of borax as a detergent. Mm-hmm. That's what something it's most famous as, is a detergent. Um, and it's also, you know, famous for, like, something you're not supposed to put in your mouth. Well, but... <laughs> Just so okay. you know. But if it's good enough to clean your clothes on the outside, 
it's good enough to clean you on the inside. Don't eat Tide Pods. Yeah, don't do that. Or Borax. Or bleach. Or bleach, yeah. But here's the thing. So if manufacturers use enough salt to preserve food on ships, like for exports or the military, because Britain... Britain was doing a good job still trading with the U.S. on a lot of things. Like, okay. they were saying the bacon was too salty, this was too salty, whatever. They didn't like the salty because it needs a lot of salt. There yeah. was there was not, like, there was no fridges. There was nothing to keep things cold. You throw a big block of ice on there, it's not going to last long. Yeah. Um, so borax became more popular for preserving because it didn't have that salty taste. And so in testifying, the manufacturer of the Friesine compound spoke for the industry. So, yes, he says, Friesine was now used in everything from cream puffs to corned beef. But the American public was was frankly lucky to find it there because it was probably saving them from food poisoning or cholera or something. That was legitimately his argument. Food poisoning or cholera or something. Um, so, you're welcome, basically. That was the attitude there was... <laughs> there was no, uh, there was no remorse. This was a well, okay, but you got to like, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, him standing behind his product is not unimaginable. Or like, I would expect him to at least stand behind his product, even if I don't agree and think it's dumb. If you create a product, you should stand behind it for whatever reason you can think of. I mean, I somewhat agree. But his attitude was a little more than just standing behind his product. It was definitely a, like, I'm saving you all. You should thank yeah. me. Very, very haughty. Um, so Wiley's opinion was that all the additives should be tested for safety. And that mandatory ingredient labeling is needed immediately. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't even, like, extreme in saying, well, I'm going to ban this. I'm going to ban that. He was saying we need to scientifically test these things. Um. And then with the labeling, his quote was, you know, after all, were the ingredients as harmless as distilled water, there would be no excuse of its addition to food without notification to the consumer. Like, if it's fine, why wouldn't you tell people? Yeah. If you're hiding it, then you know it's not fine. So he actually wrote a little poem oh. that he that he used to conclude his testimony. Like a haiku? <laughs> it's just a, just a little line. Uh, the banquet, how fine, don't begin it. Till you think of the past and the future and sigh, how I wonder, I wonder what's in it. It's very nice. Yeah. Right. So now Senator Mason, after the hearings concluded in 1900, mm-hmm. now we're in 1900, um, he gave a pass- passionate speech for the Senate. Uh, this is the only civilized country in the world that does not protect the consumer of food products against the adulterations of manufacturers. Yes, yes, they were. Uh, his bill was shut down in the House and said it immediately after two weeks. <laughs> so it took them about a year to do nothing. Yeah. So, sadly, maybe... I, I don't really know, you know much about McKinley, but in September of 1900, he was shot... In Buffalo. Yes. Yes, you knew this? Yeah. Okay. He uh, probably should have survived the attack. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. So, Roosevelt, he he's the VP at this point, by the way. Roosevelt was told he'd be fine. Go on your business trip, Roosevelt. He'll be fine. He'll recover. So, he left. And the doctors in Buffalo refused to use that newfangled x-ray technology that they were asked to use. 
And so McKinley actually died nine days later of sepsis, massive, massive infection, because all the pieces did not get removed. Yeah, right. I mean, antibiotics would have definitely helped, but um, yeah, they had the x-rays. They just refused to use them. So Teddy Roosevelt is now the president, if you're following along here. Roosevelt and Wiley do not get along, Hmm. not from the start. So shortly after taking office, Roosevelt summons Wiley to testify about a sugar thing, a law about sugar in Cuba. It's kind of complicated. Uh, Wiley's an expert in sugar. He wants him to testify. Wiley told his boss, I I can't testify. Like, tell Roosevelt to drop the summons because, like, I'm going to say something he does not want to hear. He's going to get mad at me. I don't want to get fired. Um, He won't lie, though. Remember, we talked about his strong morals. So, yeah, he's... He's not willing to do anything besides go and tell the truth. So he's like, just don't make me go. His boss, of course, makes him go. He's like, it'll be fine. You're overreacting. (laughs) Wiley said the thing he believed to be true. Roosevelt was mad and demanded he be fired. All of this, um, shocking. Wiley's boss, though, was like, that's my bad. Like... I'll fix this. Kind of told Roosevelt, it's not really fair to fire him for something I made him do. Like, yeah. Eh. So, so they didn't get along is the moral of the story. They started on a very bad foot and uh, didn't get any better from there. So Roosevelt was, is not going to be a willing ally for Wiley in this whole activist fight here. Sure. Um, and meanwhile, the chemical additives business was thriving under all this lack of regulation. So by 1901, there is at least 152 new preservatives on the market. Um, I mean, they're new in name, but they're all very similar to each other. Slight, slight differences in the, in the like amounts of each active ingredient, that kind of thing. Um, but the biggest difference though, is the new preservatives, had much higher doses of the active ingredients than before. So the formaldehyde, borax, uh, salicylic acid, and copper sulfate were the main um, active ingredients. And so they're at higher doses than ever. Um, One of the advertisements actually said a good preservative was guaranteed to keep meat, fish, poultry for any length of time without ice. Just any. Hmm. Any. Immortal meat. Yeah, bombed meat. There you go. Yeah. So the other product that was increasing, though, in popularity were, like, food substitutes, synthetic food substitutes. Because, like, they'd already been using citric acid, you know, instead of lemons or, you know, extract of peppermint instead of mint or whatever. Um, But now these were the ones manufactured in the lab. So saccharin had just been discovered at John Hop's John's. Hopkins. I just forgot the S. Johns Hopkins in 1879 um, and was much cheaper than sugar. Yeah. So this huge potential for profits uh, drew some really big names. The industrial chemist Charles Pfizer. Uh, Yes. yes. That Pfizer. Yes. Uh, He started producing borax and boric acid, citric acid, and cream of tartar. Oh. Got to get into the food game, which had a lot of aluminum, by the way. Um, a Chicago businessman named Jacob Bauer, inventor of the soda fountain, was so interested in saccharin that he actually funded a small St. Louis startup to produce it in large quantities. That company is the Monsanto Chemical Company. Hmm. That's how they started. 
the food and drink market also attracted Herbert Henry Dow, founder of the Dow Chemical Company, yep. which I have heard of. Yeah, I'm familiar with that one. <laughs> so uh, the thing is that none of these things had been tested for safety, right? Like none of the additives, none of the substitutes. Um, and Wiley was really worried about the cumulative effects of all of this, like not just one dose, yeah. but like how much of this stuff are we eating in a, in a lifetime? In a So in a day... Like, one of his chemists made this little sample menu of something. And the menu was a little maybe high class, I'm going to say. So, a lot of different foods and maybe it wouldn't be the average person's diet. But, you know, not an uncommon diet. That the average person might actually eat 40 doses of chemicals and dyes per day. Um, Wow. And, yeah. So, why just... He wants to know what's going on. Um... All this stuff is just unproven. And I shouldn't say it wasn't tested. We'll say unproven. Because it was tested. Manufacturers had this safety test that they would use. Um, It just wasn't very rigorous, you could say. So what they did was they mixed together and then liquefied food and drink that had, you know, the additive in it, right? Um, They injected that into a rabbit. And then they watched the rabbit for a few minutes. So here's the test. If the rabbit died immediately, it wasn't safe. If the rabbit didn't die in those, you know, few minutes, then it was safe. I mean, it seems pretty cut and dry. Obviously, this all makes sense. What's that thing in statistics where it's like just only two options? Like Bernoulli's, was it Bernoulli? I'm I'm trying to remember. It's something. The Bermuda Triangle? I'm trying to say... We'll just say binary. Let's say the choices for this should not be binary. It shouldn't be dead rabbit, dangerous, live rabbit, safe, but brilliant. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. There's a, there's a, well, there's a lot of different statistical things, but there's one where you have to use where the only answers are yes or no or one or two or whatever. True or false. Um, That's not interesting. I'm going to stop talking about that now. So it was awful study design. (laughs) You could not tell that. Wiley could tell that. Mm. And and uh, he didn't think it was good. He thought it was pretty ridiculous. And now he's back to thinking how he could scientifically test these things. And that is when he dreamed up the poison squad. Ah, see, there it is. The end. Just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is the end for this week. But I'm definitely going to tell you about the poison squad a little bit next week. In the... Th- third part of the trilogy yeah i unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you're enjoying the series so far um think this might end up being a four-parter but a four-part trilogy i love it uh yeah i i I didn't name a trilogy you did that because i haven't finished writing so i don't know (laughs) um i can't I'm, i'm making no promises on whether it's a trilogy or Something without a catchy name, because I'm not using quadrilogy. I'm, I'm good with four-part trilogy. It just reminds me of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, why? Because that was coined as a... Oh, was it four or five books? But he explicitly calls it in, in an interview or in one of the books that it's like a four or five-part trilogy. Oh, he's clear on that, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. He's a very interesting author. Yeah, Douglas Adams. Great, great author. <laughs> So thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Um, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.